Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. In a major departure from convention, we've got just one long interview today. This with Kate Soper, whose book Post-Growth Living for an Alternative Hedonism is just out in paperback from Verso. Before that, a few comments of my own. First, the human fallout of an energy transition. In a new National Bureau of Economic Research working paper, Josh Blons, Brigitte Roth-Tran, and Ern Troland the first and last of the Federal Reserve, the second of the San Francisco Fed, report on the broad effects of the decline in coal mining on household finances in Appalachia. Of course, removing coal from our energy mix as rapidly as possible is a top priority if we want to clean up our energy act. Everything about it is enormously filthy, from mining it to burning it. But what are the human costs of an unplanned transition away from it? To answer those questions, the authors used data from the credit reporting agency Equifax, which the New York Fed has been using to report on household finances for several years now. The Equifax data has broad coverage and is very timely, though as anyone who's looked at their own credit file knows, it makes mistakes. Quibbles aside, the trio of economists looks at important measures of household economic well-being between 2011 and 2018, a period when total employment in the industry fell by 43%, as overall employment rose by 11%, in counties with a heavy concentration of coal mining. Coal-rich Appalachia has long been one of the poorest parts of the country, with relatively low educational attainment by national standards, a gap that has been widening. A good bit of the reason for this miserable performance is that coal has been in decline for far longer than the last decade or two. It's more like a century. Coal has become progressively less competitive economically compared to natural gas, as both plant construction and extraction costs have fallen. The last thanks to fracking, which certainly won't win any environmental awards either. Even though coal accounted directly for about 2% of employment in what they define as the active coal mining counties, the economic impact of the decline was broader and more severe than that small share would suggest. For example, credit scores in coal-intensive regions were about three points lower than they would have been without the decline. That may not sound like much, but other researchers have found that even a one-point decline could be economically meaningful. The effects went well beyond the 30,000 or so miners who lost their jobs in the affected area. The effects are largely concentrated among those in the bottom half of the credit score distribution. At the 40th percentile, roughly the cutoff for a subprime, the credit score hit was 7 points. Quite significant. Those credit score declines translated into half a percentage point increase in mortgage interest rates. The decline in coal resulted in increases in the share of households ranked as subprime. It also resulted in a more intensive use of credit cards, higher delinquencies in collection rates, and more entries into bankruptcy. Damage was most felt in the second lowest quartile of credit scores, in other words, people who are on the verge of falling into serious hardship. But even those in the top quartile, that's the top quarter, take a hit. A small one, but evidently no one is safe from the contraction in coal country. None of these findings are driven by age. As the authors note in their conclusion, these findings are a warning about what might happen in other fossil fuel-producing areas, as carbon-based energy sources recede in importance. They don't note, but I will, that the political effects of this impoverishment can be harsh. West Virginia, for example, about which more in a moment, went from being one of the most democratic voting states in the country to giving Trump his second-highest vote margin, after Wyoming, a venny in 2020. This underscores the need to insulate affected regions against the harms coming from an essential energy transition. And now a closer look at the state most closely identified with coal, both by outsiders and residents, West Virginia. A number of writers have explored the near-mythic status coal has in the state. Even though it accounts for under 3% of total employment, half what it did 30 years ago, the state organizes its identity around the resource. But having such a coal-centric economy has not been kind to West Virginia. It is the second lowest life expectancy of any state, just behind Louisiana and ahead of Mississippi. At 72.8 years, it's five years lower than New York's, six years lower than California's, and eight years lower than the leader, Hawaii. The economic stats are miserable, too. West Virginia has the second lowest employment population ratio in the country, the share of the adult population working for pay. That's known as EPOP in the trade. 
Their EPOP is just under 53% behind South Carolina and above Mississippi, which is dead last again. That EPOP is almost 8 points below the national average and 15 points below the leader, Nebraska. It's long been this way. Even at the peak of the national EPOP, almost 65% in April 2000, it was turning in a miserable 53%. West Virginia has the fifth highest poverty rate, 15%, almost four points above the national average, and nearly three times the state with the lowest rate, New Hampshire. Coal has made a lot of people rich over the decades, including Senator Joe Manchin, just not ordinary West Virginians. It's left behind poverty and a blasted, poisoned landscape. And much the same can be said of other areas where we've drawn carbon out of the ground. As we move away from fossil fuels, which we're doing, though way too slowly, we need to take care of the people in regions who are getting hammered by the transition. Employment in oil and gas extraction is down by almost 40% over the last three decades, not as much as coal, which is down by 70%, but still quite a lot, with more to come. In conventional economic news, it's looking more like we're on the verge of recession. One piece of evidence is a set of leading indicators, which are designed to forecast moves in the broad economy, six to nine months out, produced by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, a Paris-based think tank sponsored by the world's rich countries. The indicator's message, a global recession is likely this year, and possibly sooner than anyone expects. That goes against what seems to be the emerging soft landing consensus in Wall Street, that is a slowdown but no actual contraction. Maybe American exceptionalism will work out for us, but the OECD's indicators are flashing red. The March 2023 readings for almost every large, rich country are down from a year earlier. How does this look in historical perspective? Of the 12 countries I looked at, the seven rich ones in the G7, and five major developing or emerging economies, whatever you want to call them, every one of those 12 countries is negative year on year. That's unusual. It's happened in fewer than 10% of the month since January 1970. And when it does, a global recession is usually imminent. In releasing its biannual World Economic Outlook on April 11th, the International Monetary Fund said, side effects from the fast rise in policy interest rates are becoming apparent, as banking sector vulnerabilities have come into focus and fears of contagion have risen across the broader financial sector, including non-bank financial institutions. Risks to the outlook are heavily skewed to the downside, with the chances of a hard landing having risen sharply. Just yesterday, it emerged that the Federal Reserve staff economists are now projecting a mild recession starting later this year with a recovery over the subsequent two years. Wall Street seems not to be listening to the Fed, the IMF, or the OECD. I'm not reflexively deferential to institutional authority, but maybe these voices deserve a listen. I should say that while recessions are treated as extraordinary events, they're an inevitable feature of capitalism. It's one of the reasons to hate this system, but they can't be conjured away. Back with Kate Soper after a musical break. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons of number 9 coal And the straw ball said, well, bless my soul You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store In a cane break by an old mama line Ain't no high-toned woman Make me walk the line You load 16 tons And what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store How was some of that old chestnut? 16 tons So this one done by Johnny Cash Not Tennessee Ernie Ford Frequent listeners may recall a very contentious interview I had with Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vitesi, authors of Half-Earth Socialism. They envisioned a world in which humans withdrew from half the Earth's surface, and we may do with radically less. I was unconvinced by the need for something that extreme, but that aside, I thought the agenda as they presented it, very much with the mean of a hair shirt salesman, had almost no political appeal. Here's a different approach. Kate Soper is a philosopher who's been writing about human needs, just what are they? Nature and environmentalism for decades. Her book, Post-Growth Living for an Alternative Hedonism, was published in hardcover by Verso in 2020 and has only just now come out in paperback. 
She argues that the hair-shirt approach doesn't work. We need a new form of hedonism, one characterized by non-material pleasure. A ludic culture, as she puts it, one of playfulness and spontaneity, rather than one of scripted purpose imposed on us by capitalist competition. Or as Marx put it, the law that continually throws capitalist production out of its old ruts and compels capital to strain ever more the productive forces of labor for the very reason it has already strained them, the law that grants it no respite and constantly shouts in its ear, March, March. Kate Soper argues we can do better. A lot of the writing about uh, the climate crisis is all about evocations of gloom, and a large subset of it is devoted to finger-wagging about the need to cut back. You've got a pretty different approach, uh, which is all about reconstituting our political culture and way of life. What are the limitations of that conventional, the hair-shirt, finger-wagging approach? Well, I think in my view, it would be that people tend to be put off by a very doom-laden kind of argument. And I've argued in the context of defending what I call an alternative hedonist approach. In other words, one that suggests, firstly, that the existing ideal of a consumerist affluent lifestyle associated with Western culture is not necessarily such a wonderful thing anyway. It has a lot of downsides, and I can go into that later if you want. But also, therefore, we ought to think in terms of a post-consumerist way of living and working as potentially more enjoyable. And as part of that argument, I'm saying that it's more likely, I think, that people would respond more positively and with less a sense of despair were that to be given a higher profile in the media and by politicians. So what we want, I'm suggesting, to galvanise more people into action and into demanding the political representation that could give us a serious green renaissance Uh, what would galvanise them would be more representation of what I call an alternative politics of prosperity, a different way of enjoying ourselves, and that there is a great deal of pleasure that we haven't really envisaged as yet that might come potentially from moving to a a less growth-driven, less acquisitive, less materialistic kind of way of living. In the present, there's an awful lot of Puritan self-denial in the current capitalist order. Um, you know, even if we think we've left uh, Weberian, you know, Protestantism behind, there's still uh, a lot of Puritan self-denial in this current order that uh, is uh, overlooked when uh, people react to the, the hair shirt environmentalism. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, part of that is the is driven by the dominance of a, a work ethic, which applauds only people who are, as it were, devoted to work and gets us all, therefore, in a sense, locked into a work-and-spend-spiral way of living, a way in which we work in order to acquire money, in order to spend it on the goods that are being produced and services as well. You know, it is a rather Puritan <laughs> way of living, or it's an offshoot of, a, of that Puritan ethic. But I'm also saying that the so-called good life is not so wonderful either, that it has its puritanical and less attractive sides. It's a major cause of stress and ill health. It's noisy, polluting. It's very wasteful in various respects. Its work routines and commercial priorities, as I say, have forced people to plan their whole lives around job-seeking and career And as a consequence of that, many are condemned to unfulfilling and precarious work lives in the gig economy. And even those who have got more secure employment are frequently spend their days, you know, caught up in traffic jams, followed by um, being glued to a screen, engaged in quite mind-numbing tasks. You know, I'm not saying this is true of everybody, but it is true of quite a lot of us. So it it obviously isn't a particularly enjoyable way of living. So, as I say, we're kind of locked into the creation of a material culture of continuous home improvement, fast fashion, urban sprawl, speedier production, and built an obsolescence. So these are all uh, generating quite a toxic environment for us. So I think, you know, part of my argument is to, to draw more attention to the downsides of the so-called ideal consumerist way of living as a background to uh, thinking about how life might become more uh, fulfilling and more pleasurable, where we should go beyond that. 
You have some problems with collapsing the distinction between humans and nature. You see that in several sides of the environmental debate. You know, you have this the post-humanist tendencies where we sort of merge with the machines, but also this uh, anti-technological feeling where we, you know, we should not be alienated from nature, but more like it. Uh, you do want to preserve that distinction. Um, why? Partly for conceptual reasons themselves. I mean, I think that it's actually very difficult to dispense with the concepts of the human on one hand and the natural on the other or the cultural and the natural, even on the part of those, you know, the so-called post-humanists who are arguing that there isn't any very clear-cut division here and that we ought to be uh, blurring the distinction between nature and culture rather than seeking to uh, sustain it. I mean, their key argument uh, and there's some truth in it in the past, certainly, and in some discourses today, no doubt. But the key argument on their side is that we preserve that distinction in a way that uh, lends itself to what's called anthropocentricity, to privileging humans over other animal species and to viewing ourselves as somehow masters of of the natural world and who can exploit it for their own ends. And there's obviously been some truth in that, that those who have sustained that distinction have argued in that kind of way. But even as they argue it, they do need ontologically to preserve some kind of way of thinking about the distinction because they invoke the the distinction themselves. So we, we need it, as it were, in a philosophical sense, or what I would call it, you know, we need to have a, a metaphysical um, or analytic distinction between the human and the natural, in order to even to begin to discuss that division. But I'm also arguing that, although I don't want to particularly privilege human beings in every respect, that there are important differences between us and other animals, and that uh, one of those is, you know, is that we we are committed to not just a purely reproductive kind of existence, nor driven entirely by instinctual ways of behaving, but also are interested in what's sometimes called transcendence, in that we have a kind of dynamic to of uh, pressing for further fulfilment and self-realization that I think is not characteristic in the same way of other animal species and. Because of that, we've been driven, if you like, in part into a very highly consumerist way of gratifying that. I mean, you could see consumer culture, as for many people, gratifying the urge to do something more than simply exist by goods or or services. Or There is a kind of competition here, I think, from a consumerist point of view. But the other way in which... And it's the one I want to most stress in a way is that when we conceive of ourselves as simply on a continuum with other parts of nature, we are on a slippery slope to a kind of fatalism where we say, well, actually, we can't, you know, we're no, just as the the Dutch elm beetle can't do anything about the damage it inflicts on the elm. So we, you know, it's somehow part of our own nature to live in the forms of, in the more destructive ways that we do on the planet and that therefore we don't have any very special responsibility for correcting those but in fact if you think about it most of the destruction that's going on is indeed our responsibility and indeed the responsibility of quite a small number of us relatively about 10 percent are responsible for 50 percent of carbon emissions for example i don't want to lend myself to a way of thinking about the humanity-nature coupling, the humans-animals distinction, that then begins to be used as a justification for not being responsible for the damage that we have um, incurred. Yeah, there's this uh, um, line of thinking you see sometimes that humanity is a virus upon the earth or something that that doesn't seem very constructive. Now, there's a reflex on the left to blame corporations for ecological ruin. Um, is there any way to get our consumption patterns off the hook, or can we externalize all the blame onto those somewhat abstract actors? Well, I think it's a big mistake to think that we could externalize all the blame onto corporations. Is that is that your question? Yes, yes. I think I'm very much against the idea that there's a them v us way of thinking about climate um, 
change and environmental collapse and that we need to recognise the way in which we are also caught up as consumers within it. One of the reasons I'm not entirely optimistic about how far we're going to, as it were, survive this, the runaway climate change, is that not enough people are, I think, prepared to recognise their own role in the creation of the catastrophe that's facing us. And this could simply take the form of the very same people who will perhaps complain about the role of the oil industry are also still driving and flying without very much compunction. I mean, I think we have to recognise that the interests of people in continuing the patterns of consumption that have that they're used to, and uh, the priority they give to convenience in, say, going and buying as much as they can from Amazon at a click of a, their mouse and so on, these are also aspects of the problem, and that we shouldn't be, be, be saying all the blame must lie with the, with the fossil fuel giants themselves, although a lot of it must, particularly the silence they've kept for so long about the damage that they knew they were uh, doing to the environment. I want people to recognise their own role, and um, even as they uh, join up as forms of, you know, protests or go on marches on environmental issues, they are still very often not actually looking sufficiently critically at the impact of their own consumption. I'm speaking with Kate Soper, author of Post Growth Living, just out in paperback from Verso. You talk about the responsibility of individuals. You've just done that some and valorize consumption decisions to a degree that's unusual on the left, because you often hear critiques of green consumption, soulful consumption, shopping for a better world, these kinds of things. Could you talk more about this? What precisely is the responsibility of individuals here? That is a, a very complicated issue, I think. There are limits within the current global economic order to the way that individuals can themselves adjust their consumption and their ways of living. I mean, that has to be recognised. And very often the poorer you are and the more at the behest of your employer in a corporation or factory or wherever you are, the less likely you are to be able to take the kind of action that you might want to. Very often fast food, using a car to get to work and so on, these become essentials or you're not actually going to be able to do your job or you're not going to be able to find the time to do all the things that you need to do in your day. So I think there is a limit within the current economic order. There are things that people can do. I mean, here back in the UK, for example, I don't know what it's like in the States, people who could put themselves out a bit to use the buses more, for example, or who could try and use alternative modes of transport on the whole, don't do it enough. I think there are sort of measures that people can take to improve their environmental impact. But I am going to acknowledge the limits here, the systemic limits. So the other thing that we need to do is to press in as ardent and collective way as possible for political representation of an alternative way of living. There are two ways in which individuals can make a difference. One is to... Uh, to do what they can as as individuals in the form of consuming or very often not consuming. The other is to take a more active role politically. But that political role obviously then has to feed in and become part of a mandate that is taken up by some political party who also have to have enough support to to be able to former government to become in, you know, to have a mandate for uh, more radical policies than we're currently seeing at the moment. I don't think we should despair about this. If you look at what happened uh, in places like the UK, like the USA, we've already seen that there is no way in which governments can any longer ignore the crisis of the environment. I mean, it is, part of, it is now part of their manifesto without any question of doubt, and they don't get into power unless it is. That was not the case even five years ago. It certainly was hardly on the manifestos 10 or 15 years ago. So we we should recognise that there is an important role for public pressure here, and that it does get through as part of the political process eventually. Sadly, we have an entire political party in the U.S. devoted to denying the ecological crisis. We do, still. That's, yeah, I mean, I trust you on that one. I mean, they actually deny it still, do they? 
Yeah. And you have got one that doesn't about as well now. And you probably didn't. I mean, it wasn't really on the agenda, was it, for a long time? So it is now. I mean, here I don't think any political party is going to get very far while denying the crisis, actually, whether of the light or of the left. I mean, across the board now, it has to be recognised. And, for example, the Tory government here is under a lot of pressure now to get their act together. And they're going to lose votes, I think. Um, and they recognise it now. A while back, I did contrast. I looked at what the Conservative Party was saying about uh, the climate crisis and ecological issues more broadly. And uh, it was just a world different from what you hear out of a Republican Party. Yeah, no, the Republican Party is... uh, It's a threat to humanity, really. I I mean, I've seen that way. I agree. Part of your approach is to really reconfigure our idea of consumption, of what will make us happy, what our, our needs are. In the Marxist tradition, starting with Marx himself, but we've often celebrated the expansion of needs that capitalism brings about or expansion of our conception of needs. Uh, Ernest Mandel has a passage in Late Capitalism where he talks about it's good to criticize the debasement of needs and the desire for consumption under capitalism, but we should not take the reactionary step of criticizing that expansion of needs or the expansion of desires that capitalism has uh, fertilized. You write that there's no real set of basic or authentic needs that we can return to in the name of sustainable consumption, given the expensiveness and variability of human desire. What is your idea of need? What is your idea of what uh, can be satisfied through consumption? How should we reconfigure that? Yes, it's a very central, it's a very key, difficult question, very complicated one. How long have you got, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, Mandel is right. He puts his finger on a point that Marx himself makes, you know, when he talks about the civilising influence of capitalism, for example. And he means by that, you know, that's in the Grundry, so he means by that the, you know, the indefinite expansion of needs, the, the breakaway from what he calls the parochial consumption of the feudal era and so on. The generation of alienation itself is in, in, in one way can be seen as part of that sort of expansion of needs. And alienation is a concept that you could apply to um, something that actually generates new forms of emancipation and pressure for change, as, for example, in the case of something like you know, feminism or anti-racism and so on and so on. What I'm talking about here is not trying to reconfigure needs as uh, what we need to do now, as it were, in the way of gratifying our needs. I want to not suggest that it makes sense to argue for returning to the simple life. I mean, I don't think that's going to work, nor do I think it is going to be really gratifying in the way that we potentially could evolve. Arguing about what is what we truly need is almost impossible, obviously, but I think we need... What I would like to see happen now would be for a debate to be opened up that takes us beyond assuming that the so-called consumerist culture that has been generated by capitalism is in some sense the ideal. There's a, there's a great tendency, and it's across the left-right divide. So you see it amongst socialists just as much as you see it amongst the right wing to what I call naturalise the existing affluent mode of consumption as the only one worth having. And that's what I would like us to get beyond. I think Marxists and socialists have been very good at recognising that there's nothing particularly inevitable about capitalist mode of production, but they're much less ready to uh, accept that there is nothing necessarily necessary (laughs) about the consumerist mode of, of consumption that's gone together with it. You know, I would like us to have a debate opening up, particularly the left should be pioneering this more, I think, around an alternative way of living and the possibly as yet undreadful forms of expansion of our needs, if you like, that could be opened up by rethinking our whole policy on work, uh, moving to uh, a culture which said, all right, let's stay with a more materially reproductive way of living. So we don't have endless expansion of material goods, endless expansion of material hungry services. Let's stay with a materially 
reproductive way of living, which would give us a great deal more free time because we wouldn't have to do so much work and would mean much less uh, demand on natural resources. And then think of the expansion needs in terms of what we do with our free time, where we could move into, uh, and education should be rethought in terms of education preparation for the fulfilling use of more time other forms of conviviality or, or expansion of music or drama or, or games playing. Or, we want what I've sometimes called to begin to imagine a less instrumental and acquisitive way of living and replace it by something that I call a, a ludic culture, one where the idea is to actually think of ourselves as not wasting time when we're not doing anything or when we're only playing chess games or whatever we might... See what I mean? I mean, it, I don't want to nail myself to saying these are what are truly needed. This is, these are the only things that are, you know, make life worth living. I'm not... Because I can't dictate needs. One, one shouldn't dictate needs. Let's have more of a discussion. Let's put this more on the political agenda in an era of climate change and climate emergency where it is badly needed from the point of view of, uh, of, of rescuing ourselves from that kind of disaster, that we actually do rethink the growth economy and the, the lifestyle that it's generated and uh, is persisting and seeking to maintain. That was the first part of my interview with Kate Soper, author of Post-Growth Living. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Weekend Without Makeup for the Long Blondes, Wants and Needs, Very Different Things. And now the second part of my interview with the philosopher Kate Soper, author of Post-Growth Living from Versa. Uh, historically, the Marxist left, but not just the Marxist left, um, it's been pretty quiet on the issue of what a post-revolutionary or, you know, less ambitiously, a better society would look like. This is a problem, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, it, it goes together with what I've just been saying. I think I would like the left to pay more attention to this kind of aspect. As a socialist, although I haven't been committed to everything of a, of a socialist government, I'm certainly sort of feel that we're not going to be able over the next two or three centuries, if we are still there, to keep going with an expanding growth-driven capitalist economy. So I think we have to rethink our economic order uh, quite seriously. But as such, I've also worried that it's all very well to say what's wrong um, and what could potentially put it right, but we also need to acknowledge the problem of how we get from what are the processes of transformation, who are the agents of transition from a, a doomed way of doing things to a more potentially sustainable one. That's where I feel the left has been a bit loath to actually commit itself, and, and it, it risks falling into a kind of idealism if all you can do is to condemn of capitalism, but not actually suggests how it could be replaced or 
and above all how we might get from A to B. And as part of thinking about how we get from what might be the agent of transformation, I've tried to point not necessarily to the agency of the proletariat or anything, which I think a lot of us on the left do not think is now going to kind of be the way forward, but to the potential for a much more trans-class disaffection with the downsides of the consumerist lifestyle. And again, I think that's not something that the left has wanted to take up. There's been a, a sense, I think, on the left that the where the militancy will come from and where all the power lies still is at the level of production. I'm less certain about that. So I recognise that, you know, in some ways I'm a, a bit of a maverick figure, if not even, well, you know, unorthodox, certainly. A heretic. A heretic, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, I'm a bit of a heretic in putting the emphasis, in, in, in shifting the emphasis towards consumption. It's not because I don't think we need to change the mode of production, but what would trigger that form of change at the level of production? I'm saying, well, potentially maybe enough of us begin to rethink the way we're living, what I call the regime of consumerism, in which we're all caught up, however poor we are. Even if we don't have access to its, its luxuries, we're still caught up in that regime. Trying to think past it is very important, I think, to generating the will to transform our economic order along more sustainable lines. And that's something I think the left has not, not wanted to say very much about. I agree with you. Now, you um, are sceptical about putting the, the working class at the centre of, of all the action, the working class at centre stage. Um, uh, that's, of course, quite controversial and could be a program in itself. But that doesn't mean that you don't write about a lot about work. And a lot of your book is devoted to the problems of work and how it might be reconfigured. You are critical of the debasements of work under modern capitalism, and, but, and you reject the longing for a fully automated luxury communism. But you also cite Adorno's warning about a retrospective infatuation with the aura of the socially doomed craftsman. How do you balance all these things? What do you have in mind here? Yes, no, I mean, again, excellent question. I suppose I'm saying, look, if we were to commit to a less work-dominated uh, culture, where we suppose we sort of move to a three- or four-day working week, then, you know, it would have a lot of advantages. Many people would be spared all the hassle and expense of commuting and so on. We would avoid a lot of the, what David Graeber has called the bullshit, jobs, you know, the people spending their entire lives working on jobs they don't really believe are needed. We'd also get past some of the insecurities, which are dire now, of the so-called precarious and the gig economy. If we could move to a working culture no longer dominated by profit-driven ideas of efficiency, you could introduce other ways of working, more artisanal modes. I mean, I'm not saying we go back to the doomed era of the crossbow. No, we don't. But why don't we think in terms of mixed modes? For example, we get a, I mean, this isn't just my idea. The American economist Juliet Shaw has talked about it in her book Plenitude, where you actually have smart technologies in certain areas, cheek by jowl, with um, some other more craft-based artisanal modes of working where appropriate. Once you get away from the idea that you have to that is only efficient to produce as much as you can in the shortest possible time. Time doesn't have the same purchase on the notion of how to produce. And this is a sort of William Morrissey-like idea, I suppose. So you could, I'm suggesting, enjoy very smart green technologies in, say, in the production of energy. And certainly in medicine, I think, we would keep all the advantages of modern medicine and some, you know, but we could also have more sustainable methods of agriculture using methods that were employed in the past but have been superseded. And this is particularly relevant, I think, to some of the destruction and loss of uh, ways of living that, uh, that are, you know, in, in less so-called developed areas of the world, in poorer countries, have come under, the, have been exploited under the neoliberal global capitalist era. The craft era was caught up you know, in quite um, 
regressive social relations and often in patriarchal ways of thinking about uh, gender and so on. So we could have a return to craft, but we don't want to return to the social order of craft. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Just a, a rhetorical issue. I'm wondering about organizing the critique around growth. Uh, we're struggling, or the richer economies are now struggling to reach 2% a year, which would have been thought of as depression levels uh, a couple of decades ago. Is it really the problem growth, or is it really the whole structure or the qualitative issues of what we produce, what we consume, how we live? I mean, I think they're both caught up. I mean, uh, we need to rethink what we produce. I want to argue about the issue around degrowth is that um, we probably would in a transition to a post-growth order or an order less driven by growth need to allow for growth in certain key areas, particularly in sustainable forms of energy production and so on, and in the expansion of various care and medical provision and so on. And we certainly need to retain a growth economy of a certain kind that, that privileges uh, certain areas of production in order to to improve the condition of many living in the poorest parts of the globe. And without more social justice globally, I don't think we're going to make a great deal of progress here. So that is an important part. And some growth, um, in certain, particularly in certain key areas, renewable energy, housing, provision, education, caring, and so on, will be essential to that. But I think we also need to have a kind of debate about what we mean by growth. Are we viewing growth as an essential and permanent dynamic of any effective economic order? Well, I think a lot of people, again, across the political divides, and certainly all those in government in the US and the UK at the moment, do think of growth in that way, that you can't have an effective economic order that isn't in a permanent dynamic of expansion. And they want to then claim that we can have that and that it's compatible with environmental conservation. But, of course, it isn't. Um, so I think we need to allow for a, an idea of growth that is needed uh, up to a point, but within an economic system that is being redesigned in order to foster ways of living very different from those of profit-driven capitalist consumer culture. So if we think of growth only as needed forms of productive expansion in a transition period within a, an economic order that's committed to, to moving away from the, the forms of production and the priority given to certain goods and services in our own culture. That's a different way of thinking about degrowth, or about growth, if you like. I'm speaking with Kate Soper, author of Post-Growth Living, just out in paperback from Verso. Growth does have the advantage from a politician's point of view of taking some of the edge off the demands for redistribution um, or you know, reconfiguration of society. A trickle-down economy idea, you mean? Yeah, well, there's this line in American politics, it's a cliche, a rising tide lifts all boats. But it doesn't, does it? I mean, most of the uh, economic uh, data on that kind of thing shows that, that that is not really the case. Well, it hasn't been true for 50 years in the US. Then. So, I mean, it's not a good argument, I don't think. And, and actually, nor is the argument that you can have endless growth compatible with greening your economy. I would reject that. A lot of economists would do so too. And there's a lot of research now being done that suggests that decoupling, that you can't decouple, you can't have growth and sustainable, that the more growth you have, although you may make it more efficient from an environmental point of view, you wipe out that efficiency by the increase in production. So I would argue, and I'm not the only one to do so now because de the degrowth movement is uh, getting more attention and there are more people in the academy who are working on it. But I would argue that it's those who say that you can have a, a degrowth transition to a new green economy. You have to prove the wisdom of their case rather than the other way around. There's very little evidence for the idea that decoupling growth from increased carbon emissions actually work. 
Okay, let's uh, let's bring this to a close. Um, let's talk a bit about the politics of this. It's easy for um, opponents of this kind of agenda that you're talking about to describe it as austerity for masses who are deprived of material comforts. They're being told to do with less by you know professors uh, and uh, and bureaucrats, uh, and while they're just struggling to pay the rent. How do you deal with that kind of uh, response? One of the ways I think is to recognise that. There's a point to it. I mean, I, 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 I don't actually think that um, it is without some uh, truth that people who have not actually had the advantages of a great deal of um, consumption are, you know, are necessarily without a kind of case to be made here. But my answer would be, well, there's there's two ways, two kinds of answers, I suppose. One is that, I, as I tried to explain earlier on, is that they themselves are caught up, in, in a way, in a regime of consumption, even though they're not necessarily in a position to enjoy many of its blessings, poorer and more work-driven people. And that therefore, in a sense, they're deprived, as we all are, but they too are, of the possible alternative pleasures that we could be enjoying, which would not necessarily be given a, a material form, but would be allow them a lot more conviviality, a lot more free time, a lot more choice in the way that they use that free time and so on. We have to say, look, you are yourself caught up in thinking that the consumerist culture is is something inscribed naturally in some way, that this is the only ideal of the way to live. But there are ways in which it seems to me to be an extremely negative way of living. The noise, the toxicity, the forms of narcissism that it kind of encourages I mean, it's depressing in lots of ways, the, the way in which technology dominates the way that people live their lives. I mean, everybody is absolutely glued to their mobile phone and has no, you know, tends to have so much less contact with their children or with each other and so on. And there's lots of downsides here. I'm not saying that consumer culture isn't also enjoyable in certain respects and provides goods that we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. But I am suggesting that people think a bit more about how far they really are enjoying it. And could they not, if we were to move to a, a different way of living, enjoy themselves rather more and find more fulfillment? That's where the uh, alternative hedonism comes in. I understand that my argument, um, for those who are struggling with to provide basic food, clothing and heat and so on, may look, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's challenging. I also uh, want to say that we're not going back to nature. I mean, the, you cited at the beginning, I think, those politicians who think that we're just in for a new belt-tightening austerity. My argument is not that. It's actually, that, you know, as you were saying yourself, that there are puritanical aspects of our own culture that we could get beyond. I mean, it would be in some ways a relief, you know, to be able to expand our consumption in different kinds of ways. So, but of course, for a long time, the opposition, the moment they see Greens having a, um, you know, an alternative set of ideas to provide that might challenge corporate power and the growth economy, they want to say that we're, we're taking them back to the Stone Age. Nothing is further from the truth. We're going into a post-consumer stage, not going back to the Stone Age. And then uh, there are some real short-term, long-term conflicts here. For uh, someone presented uh, the, the prospect of uh, radical transformation the way we live, uh, the appeal of buying a nice pair of shoes might provide more immediate gratification. Uh, but then we also see, you know, in the last couple of years, as energy prices rose, uh, all the high-minded dedication to green transition was set aside. And now we're just burning coal and natural gas like crazy to cope with this, you know, energy crisis uh, that we've seen in the last couple of years. How do we balance these long and short-term interests? Uh, is it possible to make your alternative hedonism appealing enough that it can overcome uh, the challenges of the short term? I don't know is the answer to this one, really. I mean, I'm not necessarily very optimistic. I mean, one of the problems here is that it gets very, very little representation in the media. I mean, one thing that, that could help in to overcome the short-term responses uh, and the naturalisation of existing ideas about pleasure and the good life would be if we had something equivalent or even 
something on a quite a minor scale relative to that of the depiction of you know that we get daily on billboards and in the media from advertising and so on. So we don't have any register to to allow people to think in terms of a different aesthetic, a different material aesthetic, or a different notion of what pleasure and delight might be. Even those who have tried to get that kind of some some representation of that into mainstream medias have been turned away, and the, because. You know, it's all funded by advertisers attached to corporate power. And if we had, for example, even uh, a few journals or a daily newspaper or, you know, I mean, or television uh, programs that were depicting these possible alternatives, <laughs> it would make a huge difference. But without that, it is very difficult to persuade people of the... I mean, people do... It's a very visual culture we're in. So I think, you know, in the absence of that kind of register, it's a very uphill battle, I have to say. But people perhaps need to think about that absence from their lives. You know, that we have no dialectic here at all around the notion of pleasure and the good life, or very, very little. No political party dares to actually say to people, how is it you want to live? What is worth doing? What, what do you think wealth and, and pleasure are? They don't turn around. They just assume that we have to produce the same things, growth, consumer culture, employment. That was the philosopher Kate Soper, whose book Post-Growth Living is just out in paperback from Verso. I'm not convinced that capitalism can live without growth, but that's the topic for another show. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit of Handshakes by Metric. Till next week, bye. That's entertainment when the cameras roll.